You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show for lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction. Join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley and Darcy Fournier. Today's guest has been writing seriously for more than 20 years. She is a best-selling author of more than two dozen books with more on the way. She has won the Carol Award, the Reader's Choice Award, the Holt Medallion, and has finaled in the Sela Awards and the Spur Awards. She's passionate about Bible studies, reading, music, cooking, and pretty much all things crafty. She's been married to an incredible husband for 29 years and counting, and they have two married adult children. Kimberly Woodhouse, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much for having me. So to start off with something fun, if you could visit with anyone from the past, who would it be and why? (laughs) You know, it's a funny question because I think over the years, my answer has changed depending on what historical event or thing in the past that I've been researching where books might take place. And so I think my answer right now would be Fred Harvey because he's just so fascinating. And all of the research and insight that I was able to gain into this man who was really behind modern day marketing and behind everything in the restaurant business. He was just a brilliant man. And so I think it would be really cool to sit down with Fred Harvey. Okay, that's an interesting choice. Like I think of Abraham Lincoln, Florence Nightingale, but (laughs) Fred Harvey. Cool. I guess that was probably influenced as well by what you're currently writing or reading or researching. Yes, exactly. And if you mentioned on your website that you're also a musician. So does music make its way into your stories or do you listen to music as you write? Yes, 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 yes. All of the above. <laughs> um, yeah, in fact, music was my whole life before I went to college and I had a scholarship to Juilliard. My life had been piano and voice lessons and competitions and playing for church and all of this. And I had no idea what God was going to do with everything. And now I met my husband the very first day at college and he is a pastor. And obviously the Lord has used music in my ministry for 30 plus years, but it's very much a part of my stories. And so a series that I just wrote with Tracy Peterson, the Treasures of Gnome series, we actually based the three heroines off of three of my little music students that were redheads and they came to a book signing and Tracy said, oh, somebody needs to write a story about them. And I said, oh, we will. (laughs) And so they're musicians and a lot of it comes, but it, music flows through a lot of my books. People will pick up on it because they know that that's part of my story. And I also do like to listen to music. I have several things in Spotify, different playlists (laughs) for different things. I'm not one of those that can listen to music with words. Mm -hmm. I have to have instrumental music, but I don't listen to it all the time. But a lot of times if I do need some inspiration, I'll have music playing in the background. No need. And what happened? Did you go to Juilliard or did you end up going somewhere else for school? (laughs) That's a really good question. I actually ended up going to a small Bible college because I had a phone call from the dean of students at this Bible college. And he had actually gone to Dallas Theological Seminary with my dad. And so I'm sure there were some working behind the lines there. But I get this phone call and he says, I want you to talk to someone. And the piano professor there 
was actually from Juilliard that had been his life and he had gone to Juilliard and he taught at Juilliard and he was retired. And in his retirement, he was working at small Christian colleges. And so I talked to this man and he convinced me that I needed to go to this little Bible college. And so I went completely to study under him and it was amazing. He was the best teacher I've ever had. He was incredible, just an incredible musician, incredible man. And so the very first day, like I said, I met my husband the very first day at Bible college and it'll be 31 years this year so <laughs> that we've been married. <laughs> That's wonderful. That reminds me of that scripture that says that um, a man, what is it? Plans his footsteps, but God, or a man plans his path, but God guides his steps. And then the opportunity to be mentored by someone who had gone to Juilliard, worked at Juilliard and is in their sort of retirement. Wow, what an experience. I'm so glad that you've listened to that calling. It would be easy, I think, to get caught up in the hype of going to a school like, right. like Juilliard, <laughs> but instead to follow that guidance. And that's awesome. I'm glad God used that to just change your life. Mm-hmm. It was phenomenal. And what is the most difficult part of your artistic process? You know, over the years, I don't know if it's really changed, but I think I'm able to answer that question better now. Like right now I'm writing book 35. So a gem of truth that just released is, I think it's my 29th release, but you know, we write way ahead of time before they, they come out. So after the process of 34, 35 books, I would have to say that the most difficult part is actually the first draft because I spend months researching. I absolutely adore and love the research process and I love the editing process. So I think the most difficult process is actually that first draft, but I write fast. And because I have so many books that I write every year, I normally have about four to six weeks to write that first draft. But, you know, my editor, Karen Ball, she's phenomenal and she always tells me I'm the queen of edits. So (laughs) I'm thankful for that. I, I love all the processes, but that is that's the most difficult. I can uh, understand that. It's especially after doing a mountain of research (laughs) and wanting to use these special unique things that you've discovered about the past, whether they're the way that that something worked with, oh, the way that some of the innovations they had at the time or the colloquialisms they had, or maybe certain fashions are, oh, historical characters, like real figures. And you want to put this into your story without weighing down the story with too much historical Mm -hmm. factor or being too (laughs) focused on that. And sometimes I think it can cramp a writer's creative process so that, yeah, that would be challenging. (laughs) How long do you typically spend researching for one book? Well, I have a pretty consistent process now. And so I divide up my days between, because I do this full time. So I'm either writing one book researching another book, editing another book. A lot of times I'm working on the synopsis for the next one that I'm going to write, or I'm working on the next proposal for my publishers. So there's normally about four in process. So I divide my day up like that, but research is normally a six month process for each book. So there's normally time every day, 
spent researching for six months for the next book. And then starting a series, I know if one series is in a particular era and setting, geographically speaking, there's a lot of research that goes into that you would use in book one, but then you might do less in book two or less in book three because you're so acquainted with that, that current era. And right. So switching to a new series, does that, are you finding you need to research more? You know, I do probably the equal amount of research for each book. And and some of my research is always going to the location as well and finding people on site. You never know who you're going to meet that is an expert on something uh, or has a really cool historical connection. And so I just did a research trip in June for my next series on my own with Bethany House, and it has dinosaurs and paleontology. So I was out at Dinosaur National Monument and just stumbled upon someone in the Chamber of Commerce whose grandparents owned land that this guy that I was researching had put up a tent on and <laughs> and part of his discovery of Dinosaur National Monument. So it was just fun, the family histories and the things like that that you can't get unless you actually boots on the ground go and try to find And so that's a big part of research for me. And then I obviously use the internet a lot, but I use the historian's rule of three, which means that I've got to have at least three sources that back up the same thing. So I know that for sure that it is a correct um, historical fact or the resources is solid and finding books. Books is one of the biggest parts of research for me. So I have tons and tons of research books, but it takes a while to find people in the right places that can direct you to the correct books, because some of them are pretty obscure. But like for the Harvey girls, I had, I hired someone at one of the universities there that had all of this one man who had researched his entire life just on, on Fred Harvey. And he had wanted to put something together and he hadn't had time to finish it before he died. But all of his stuff is archived, but it's not like you can find it digitally because it's box upon box of this man's research. So I hired somebody at the university there to go through all of it so that we could find some cool things to use in the Secrets of the Canyon series. So there's lots of different ways you can research. And because I love it so much, I could easily spend five years just researching (laughs) one book because I had sucked into it. But I normally have about six months allotted for each book. Wow, that's incredible. Now, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with me? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? I'm going to actually share something a little bit random and different. So the past few months, I've really been focusing on my health journey and physically and spiritually. And now as an empty nester, And again, as a full-time author, my job is very sedentary (laughs) and I just wanted to change things up. I wanted to spend as much time with my grandson and my husband and I love to play golf together and we love to kayak. I'm just trying to move more in the sense that all of us, I think it'd be very easy, especially after COVID, right? To just be extremely sedentary. So I have started and we are launching a million miles with Kim. So it's a completely free thing. It's just for average, ordinary, normal people to be able to join together as we are on this journey and you can log in and add your miles and we're just all collectively 
on this journey together, sharing inspiring interviews with people who have conquered great health challenges and just sharing what is working for us. And the reason why I started it was because when I started posting about the conqueror challenges that I'm doing, and I talked about my new desk setup with my treadmill and everything, I had messages were just pouring in hundreds and hundreds of messages through Facebook and through my website. And you could tell that there was just a need. People were feeling alone and feeling like they couldn't be a part of something because they weren't a health nut or they, they weren't in the best of shape and all of this. And so it's been on my heart to just encourage people on this health journey. So I'm starting that. It's called A Million Miles with Kim. Awesome. That's wonderful. It's so neat that you're, like you said, as authors, we tend to do a lot of work sedentary, yes. <laughs> or maybe you have a desk job and then you come home and you're writing. <laughs> so once again, you're at a computer. Right. So I love that you're focused on physical health as well. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. I'm going to look that up because I would love to participate in that. Thank you. I would love to have you a part of it. Now let's take a moment to talk about your latest release, A Gem of Truth. This is book two in the Secrets of the Canyon series. And I pulled up the back cover copy here for any of our listeners who aren't familiar. So Julia Schultz's reputation is on the line. She is known for being a storyteller, or as some see it, a liar. With a dark and painful past, Julia's stories were her way of thwarting the pain while making herself interesting to others. But her stories need to come to an end if she wants to prove herself trustworthy, longing for a fresh start and a second chance to earn real trust. Julia takes a job as a Harvey girl at the El Tavar Hotel, where she's challenged to be herself. Christopher Miller takes pride in running his family's small jewelry shop, but when he discovers that he has six weeks to buy the building from the landlord before it is sold, he must find a way to save his grandfather's legacy. United by the discovery of a legendary treasure, Chris and Julia find hope in each other as they work together. But when Julia's past catches up with her, doubt creeps into Chris's heart. Can he really trust her and her stories? So I don't think you could find a more regal setting than the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. And a hunt for legendary treasure promises to be a challenging adventure. What inspired the idea of a treasure hunt in the Grand Canyon? It, this goes all the way back to 2008 when my kids were teenagers and we were at the Grand Canyon and one of the interpretive signs was so cool and it talked about how the Spanish, the modern discovery of the Grand Canyon was this Spanish expedition that had come in in the 1540s and it was just a small troop from this huge expedition and these men had been on a quest for months. It had been like six to eight months already that they had been traveling. And some of them had sold everything that they owned. Some of them had gone into deep debt to make this journey. And they were all in search of the cities of gold. And we know that there was all kinds of treasure that was supposedly had at this time. And that's why the cities of gold, this legend had been going on forever and forever. We've heard of it now. It's in national treasure too, right? But reading the sign, it was just really interesting. And it sparked this whole thing in my brain and playing off of real history, this small expedition that came and found the Grand Canyon in 1540, they were just amazed in the middle of dry 
desert Arizona, they stumbled upon the Grand Canyon, literally stumbled upon it, and they were awed by it. But the Hopi people who lived there at the time and the native people that were there, they tried to convince the Spanish, oh, there's nothing here. (laughs) You won't find anything here. Mm -hmm. And then when they trekked all the way down into the canyon and got to the river and found that the river would not be navigable for their ships, they did abandon that quest. So with all of the cool history that's actually there, I made a fictional legend to go along with it about two brothers that were part of the Spanish expedition that had treasure with them. Because the belief back then was to be worthy to enter the cities of gold. You probably had to have treasure to begin with. And so two of the brothers, I have them bringing a lot of treasure with them because they are trying to gain entrance if they find the cities of gold. And so what happened to that treasure, not the treasure of the cities of gold, but the treasure that the brothers brought. It's it's a lot of fun. I had a whole lot of fun with that. And it, just, it played around in my brain for years. And I had been wanting to do a Harvey Girl series for years. And one time when my publisher said, what do you want to do next? I said, oh, I really want to do this. And so that's the secrets of the canyon. Oh, wow. That sounds so fun. And your protagonist, Julia Schultz, she has a reputation for being a storyteller, or as some put it, a liar. What details in her past led her to spinning untruthful tales? The very beginning of the book, I don't want to do too many spoilers, but Mm -hmm. there's a very traumatic event that happens that's in the prologue of the book as Julia is a child. And this event spurs her to be the storyteller, to try to get attention, also to try to not let anyone know what actually really happened to her parents, because it's a horrible thing. And you'll find out through the book what the truth is behind it, that because of these horrific experiences, that's how she survived, was telling stories. And she thought it would gain her attention and gain her friends. And she just really has a reputation for telling elaborate stories. (laughs) Poor Julia. I feel bad for her. And if people are looking at and listening to the stories, I could see how logically that would almost be a shield. So you don't have to worry about what really happened because there's this (laughs) to to take away that attention. So We've seen several stories about the Harvey girls in Christian fiction now. What interesting things did you discover when you were researching them? I think the most fascinating stuff I found about the Harvey girls was actually at the El Tavar because the El Tavar was the crown jewel of Harvey Empire. And the Harvey girls had been around for a long time at, at this point, and there were over a hundred Harvey houses. And so it was well-established who the Harvey girls were at this point. Literally the Harvey girls helped settle the West. The men married Harvey girls and that's how families began, how the settling of the West started. But at the El Tavar, it was different because this was not a stop along the trains like a lot of the other Harvey houses where they would get off the train and they would eat and they have 45 minutes, right? The passengers of the train before they got back on the train to go on their destination. And the Harvey girls, it was very brilliant how Fred Harvey put all of this together. And quality was just his huge thing. He wanted top-notch quality. He wanted everything perfect and clean and timed well. And it was just amazing to see how all of this worked together, you know, how all of the wheels all go together so perfectly. And at the El Tavar, since it was a destination location, it was a place where 
you know, especially the rich would come because it was very expensive to get out there. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And it was an expensive place to stay. And so people would summer, they would summer at the Eltabar. And the Harvey girls there had to be the cream of the crop. They had to have been well-established at other Harvey houses before they got transferred there. And things were done differently because this wasn't a rush them in, rush them out and make sure that they get the train. This was an experience. And the Harveys really did that well at Eltabar. And studying the waitresses and what they did. And one of the waitresses ended up marrying one of the photographers of the Kolb brothers that built a house on the very, very, very edge rim of the canyon. And their legacy lasts to today. The Kolb brothers studio is still there and you can go in and hear their story. And so it's, that was a huge part for me was just discovering the differences and how the Harvey girls did things there at the actual location of the Eltavar. And the Eltavar is still standing and the food is phenomenal. I would recommend anybody going to the Grand Canyon, make sure that you have a meal <laughs> at the Eltavar. Oh, wow. That does sound amazing. The Altavar Hotel and that you can go back and actually be there mm-hmm. and see what these characters and what historical people actually saw in history. That's wonderful. I love it when you read a book and you just fall in love with the characters <laughs> and become immersed in the story world. And then you can go in real life to like the location, especially when an author has just done such an amazing job describing it. And if you're going, if the author is going to the location and actually seeing it, you go there and it's like, oh, wow, I get it. This is, this is familiar. Mm-hmm. Or this was in the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very cool. It sounds like an amazing story. And what is up next for you as far as your writing goes? Oh boy. Well, I have five full-length novels releasing next year. So in January is the third book in this series, A Mark of Grace. And a lot of the readers have just been clamoring for Ruth's story. And Ruth is the head waitress through the first two books. She's a large secondary character. And so book three is her book. And I'm very excited about it. It's, it's, I think, a wonderful way to wrap up the series. And then in April, I have a brand new contemporary suspense that's coming out. I'm starting an Alaska series again. We used to live in Alaska, so I love writing about Alaska. And it's called 26 Below. So obviously it has to do with the temperature. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a cyber thriller suspense series. And so that first book is coming out from Kriegel in April. And then in May, my next book with Tracy, and we're starting a new series that takes place in Kalispell and we're hitting really cool historic locations. So the first one is the Carnegie Library and that book is called The Heart's Choice and that starts, I think I said that correctly, in May. (laughs) And then in September is my first in what I'm lovingly calling my dinosaur series because it just, it has just become my dino series. It's women in paleontology and The first book is in 1879 in Wyoming territory as they are digging for dinosaur bones. And then in November is the second in the Cyber Alaska series. And that book is eight down. Oh, wow. Well, it certainly, it sounds like you have been extremely busy. I can't believe all that you have on your plate. And how much fun to have just such a plethora of of books available. I love that you write in different genres, too, and not just the historical fiction. So very cool. Thank you. 
So for our listeners, Kimberly has been so kind to offer a copy of A Gem of Truth for our giveaway. To enter to win, just go to historicalbookworm.com and click on the giveaways page. And the direct link to the giveaway is also in the show notes of this episode. Now, Kimberly, how can our listeners connect with you? It's pretty easy. You can find me at my website, KimberlyWoodhouse.com. And if you spell my name wrong, I think I have all of the domains that all aim toward the same place. So I think you'll still find me. (laughs) I think even if you just put in KimWoodhouse.com, it'll all get back to the same place. But there you can find me on Instagram and on YouTube and on Facebook and on Twitter and all of the fun places. And you'll also be able to find there the A Million Miles with Kim that's launched. Well, thank you for coming on the show and chatting about a gem of truth. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Thank you. You too. Now for a pinch of the past. In this pinch of the past, we will be wrapping up the Paris Exposition series with a look at what critics of the day had to say about the exposition and some numbers regarding cost, and attendance. Now, the Paris Exposition was said to be overly ambitious and a costly undertaking. Not all critics believed this was best for the country at the time. One such critic was Macquire de Vogue, a supporter of the 1889 Eiffel Tower. However, he criticized the architecture of the 1900 exhibit, saying that in 1889, Iron bravely offered itself to us, naked and unencumbered, asking us to judge its architectural potential. Since that time, it seems as though iron has experienced the shame of the first man after its original sin and feels the necessity of covering its nudity. Today, iron covers itself with plaster and staff. It hides itself in casings of mortar and cement. So... From what I've seen, it's the plaster and staff was just really, well, obviously cheap. It was supposed to be something that could be taken down. A lot of the complaints about the buildings also had to do with really old-fashioned and ancient architecture for exhibits that were new age, that were supposed to be highlighting new inventions or others that just weren't sophisticated enough for this crowd. Fascinating. I guess I could see the complaint that the architecture is too old for the exhibits, but also it's complaining about the peel of an orange when you don't eat the peel anyway. Yeah. And you have to think if he really loved and admired the Eiffel Tower. I mean, you really can't compare anything with the Eiffel Tower. It's a monument all to itself. If that's your standard, Mm -hmm. then yeah, no wonder everything else kind of fell short. (laughs) Yeah. So the gateway to the fair was the Port Monumental, and it received heavy criticisms. To give you some vivid imagery of what the gateway actually looked like, I pulled a quote from architecture.com, which says, The gateway was consisted of a dome and three arches, and as a whole adorned with Byzantine motifs and Persian ceramic ornamentation and colored glass cabinets. The gate was covered with 3,000 200 blue and yellow small electric lights. So it doesn't sound that bad, right? It sounds cool. Exactly. (laughs) Yep. But it was described by attendants as lacking in taste. Some actually referred to the gateway as the La Salamander 
because it so resembled the stocky, intricately designed salamander stoves of the time. And yes, I looked up a picture of an antique salamander stove and I put it on our website because everyone wants to see that, right? Of course, of course. <laughs> and it it does actually look like it. <laughs> it looks like a cook stove, people. Mm-hmm. So to top it off... <laughs> At the top of the gateway, there was a 15-foot statue of a lady. I'm going to try and pronounce this. I believe it was La Parisienne. And she was said to be the spirit of Paris. However, some found her modernized posture and dress offensive. She was loosely referred to as the triumph of prostitution. Oh, no. Yeah. So on the one hand, it was not modern enough. And on the other hand, it's far too modern. What are you doing? I know, which is just awful because I look at her and I think of all the like different kind of feminine statues and whatnot throughout history who, you know, are dressed as though, uh, (laughs) like the critics said before sin entered the world and unshamed nudity. And this lady's in a dress and robe. I'm like... People, I think someone just wasn't being nice. (laughs) Wow. I guess it gives you an idea of people's mindset at the time. I don't know. Seems silly, I guess. It does. It does. So as for admission charges and cost, one admission ticket cost one franc. Now, at the time, the average hourly wage in Paris for a general worker was between 40 and 50. So 100 sometimes equals one franc. You would have to save for about two days worth of wages just to buy one ticket into the fair. And additional admission fees were popular attractions were usually about 50 centimes. Oh, wow. So one ticket didn't necessarily cover the entire fair. Yeah. So the Paris Exposition budgeted 100 million French francs, And of these, you had 20 million from the French state, 20 million from the city of Paris, 60 million from the expected admissions, which was backed by French banks and financial institutions. In the end, the official final cost was 119 million francs. The admission fees collected 126 million francs. Unplanned expenses equaled 22 million francs for the French state and 6 million francs for the city of Paris. So the total cost one was 147 million francs or a deficit of 21 million francs. I think I did that math right. <laughs> wow. So they did overspend. Mm-hmm. But this did, however, offset the cost to a degree was the long-term additions to Paris's infrastructure, including new buildings and bridges, additions to their transportation system, two new train stations, and the new facade and enlargement and redecoration of the Gare de, La- de Lyon and other stations. So they did at least get something out of it. So not everything that they used this money for was meant to go up, stand there for the exposition and be dismantled. There were some permanent improvements that were done. Yeah, that that kind of balances it out. They may have done Mm -hmm. them sooner or better or more more expensively than they had planned, but at least they were done. Yeah. And they really had a huge turnout. They had 83 
exhibitors, prizes of various degrees awarded were 42,790. 127 congresses had attracted over 80,000 participants. So like the unofficial (laughs) Olympics. It was also the last of its kind ever hosted in France. There were three following fairs. However, these were not truly world fairs because their focuses were on decorative arts and colonial possessions. Wow. But not so Mm -hmm. much bringing in the best from all the countries of the world to, to share. Yeah. And this was just a tiny bit. There was so much there. And then all the different, it was probably one of the most beautiful, like, World Fair exhibits that I've ever seen and looking at old photos and whatnot. I really encourage you to, if you don't have time to look online real quick and you Google it up, you could look like just check out our blog posts because they were so neat and so pretty. And there you have it. A little taste of the World's Fair in Paris in 1900. As always, I hope you've enjoyed this pinch of the past. Time for our bookworm review. The Number of Love, Codebreakers Book Number 1 by Rosanna M. White. Three years into the Great War, England's greatest asset is their intelligence network. Field agents risking their lives to gather information and codebreakers able to crack every German telegram. Margot de Wilde thrives in an environment of the secretive Room 40, where she spends her days deciphering intercepted messages. But when her world is turned upside down by an unexpected loss, for the first time in her life, numbers aren't enough. Drake Elton returns wounded from the field, followed by an enemy that just won't give up. He's smitten quickly by the too intelligent Margot, but how to convince a girl who lives entirely in her mind that sometimes life's answers lie in the heart. Amidst biological warfare, encrypted letters, and a German spy who wants to destroy not just them, but others they love, Margot and Drake will have to work together to save them all from the very secrets that brought them together. This review is by Christy, a member of our historical bookworm review team. Margot draws the reader in by being an unusual female character of the times, as she isn't obsessed by dating or fashion, but rather numbers. She finds numbers and patterns in her work and personal life that help to make sense of the world around her. When she undergoes an epic loss and her world is turned upside down, she struggles to move forward. In comes the dashing yet injured Drake, whose goal is to help Margot see more of the world around her and not through a lens of numbers. However, they must work together to figure out who is pursuing them and endangering nearby lives. White's characters are unique and stick with the reader long after the last page. Looking forward to the next book in the series. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.